you know, now that we have a vaccine that's, that's safe and, and highly effective, you do not want to deny those people um, access to that vaccine because one of the reasons that they were enrolled is because they were at risk of infection or risk of a bad outcome uh, from infection. On the other hand, to balance that, you also have the need to continue the trial till its end, and it's a two-year study, right? So the, the, you know, we need to answer questions about how long will immunity last? How long will people be protected? What are long-term, uh, are there any long-term safety issues um, related to the vaccine? Um, is the vaccine going to work through, you know, um, multiple COVID seasons? I hate to say that, but it's probably a reality. And, and so there's the balance of <laughs> we need to keep the trial going. We need to keep a placebo component and blinding uh, uh, going. Yet at the same time, we've got to meet the needs of these volunteers. Hello and welcome. This is a BMJ interview podcast. These are in-depth interviews with the people who are shaping the health of the world. I'm Joanne Silberner, an American journalist. I covered AIDS from day one, COVID-19 too. In the past, we've spoken to, among others, Jeremy Farrar, director of the Wellcome Trust, Jeremy Hunt, former UK health secretary, and Tom Frieden, former chief of the US Centers for Disease Control. Today, it's Dr. Stephen Thomas, an American physician and chief of infectious diseases at the State University of New York's Upstate Medical University in Syracuse. Dr. Thomas takes us back to early November when the Pfizer-BioNTech people asked him to be the chief principal investigator on what well, might be considered you know, it is common for uh, uh, companies in these large trials, these you know, phase three trials with thousands and thousands of people. Uh, it's common for them that they will have multiple principal investigators across multiple sites. And, you know, for the Pfizer trial, it's in many countries with, you know, over 150 sites. Uh, but they do choose a, you could lead, call it lead principal investigator or a coordinating uh, principal investigator to, um, to help them with some additional tasks. And that task is basically to be uh, an objective um, uh, a party outside of the company. I, I don't work for Pfizer. <laughs> uh, so I'm outside of the company and I, I kind of take a uh, put a, a, a um, an outside set of eyes on the data and the information that they are considering uh, to submit to the uh, to the FDA, and I ask questions, and we have dialogue. And when I'm comfortable with the answers, then I, I sign off on the information that goes to the FDA. So, so the process in and of itself is um, it's a, it's it's common. Now, how did how did I get to be uh, in this role? Um, well, I I do know that our our team here at at Upstate, which is in Syracuse, New York, in the center of the state, um, I, I do know that uh, you know we we start. We were one of the first sites to start uh, enrolling in the phase three portion of the trial. Uh, that was back in July. Um, we did end up enrolling uh, a couple of hundred people, which is a pretty large number of people to enroll for an academic um, an academic center. Um, and then there was you know another investigator. Uh, a, uh, Dr. Kathleen Newsel, who's uh, a very well-known and internationally um, respected uh, vaccinologist at the University of Maryland. She runs the Center for Vaccine Development there. And, 
and I think she may, I think she may have uh, uh, given Pfizer a vote of confidence for me. So they, so they came calling, and uh, yeah, I was very, I was very happy that I could uh, participate. Now I have to ask you this: Did you get paid by Pfizer, or and did uh, did that pay change when you became the lead PI? Yeah. So again, I'm I'm not an employee of Pfizer, and the Pfizer's relationship is with my university. So I'm a I'm a uh, you know a professor at a state state university. Um, so uh, no, I have not seen my pay. I've not seen my pay change. But it, it's basically the same. It's the same type of relationship that we have with any funder of of a trial. The relationship is with the university, and then the university. Um, resources its people to do uh, to do that work. And in terms of your looking at the results and pulling them all together, did you get any pressure from Pfizer there? Uh, no, no. They, matter of fact, they they just kind of the opposite. I mean, clearly, you would <laughs> you would be naive to think that there wasn't a sense of urgency to immediately take that data <laughs> and review that data and generate your questions and, and, and have a dialogue, right? There are, like you said, middle of a pandemic, people dying every, you know, every 30 seconds, every minute in the, in the country. So um, there was never an external, uh, never external. <laughs> it was all, it was all internal. And, you know, again, because of the ability to, the ability to somewhat, know when these milestones were going to be reached, um, I was able to program my calendar such that there was, you know, that there was, uh, that there was open space. Um, I I do, (laughs) I do remember that, you know, the information came in uh, at my night. uh, So right around dinner time and the email, (laughs) my email kind of pinged and my, uh, my wife looked at me and, uh, you know, we've been married for a while and she's kind of grinned and said, you can go. <laughs> you can go. So, um, what so night I, was that? When did I, that come in the process? Oh, I don't remember. <laughs> I'd have to look, but, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I, it's, um, it's been quite, it's been quite a, uh, quite a long year. And so I've been lucky that I, I, you know, that my my wife and children are very understanding and and, and they have a, a level of sophistication of understanding you know infectious diseases and how these things work so they so they get it right so so that what I'm take me back to that moment so you hear the ping this is the big whole amount of data or just a chunk of it coming in yeah so the way the way these things typically work right so you got forty four thousand you know volunteers and thirty seven thousand or so that are being evaluated for this fda meeting you're not getting like a an excel spreadsheet with every single person every single visit every single data point that's not what 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 you get is uh you get the the aggregated data so you get the the analyses uh, the safety analyses and the efficacy analyses and the uh, sub analyses within those th- you know those two big those two big buckets because the other point to remember i'm still blinded right so i'm i am blinded to uh, individual assignments and uh, but not to group assignments and that's how that has to work i have to remain uh, blinded um, uh, 
you know, to ensure the integrity of the data that's coming from, from my site here where we have over, you know, 300, we have over 300 volunteers and we're now enrolling 12 to 15 year olds. And so, um, yeah, so it's, it's, you know, it's a large document, uh, but it's not kind of individual listings of, of information, which again is, it's routine. That's a, that's a, that's a routine thing for a coordinating investigator uh, to get and to have to review. Well, so the data comes in, you wake up in the middle of the night, what'd you do then? So fortunately it wasn't the, it wasn't the middle of the night. It was like around, uh, you know, it was like around dinner time. Ah, I mean, I, I printed the document and I went into the bunker and started, started reading, <laughs> started reading and making marks and, uh, writing down questions and, um, and then, uh, yeah, then communicated those questions. And again, because some of us are, some of us are United States, each coast and some are in the UK and, you know, people are everywhere, right? It's a, uh, it's a big, huge global, a global company. So, um, yeah, I just communicated all of my questions and we had a, we had a back and forth. And when I felt comfortable that all those questions had been answered, um, then, uh, you know, you, you, again, this is routine. You sign the you sign the document. You provide it back to the uh, to the sponsor, and away it goes. Now, um, this I'm asking this question on behalf of some BMJ readers who have been frustrated about getting a hold of the data that you got to see. Do, do you happen to know will they ever get to see the raw data? So that you know that is that is a question that's uh, probably better directed at. At Pfizer, what I will say though is that if people if people go to the um, FDA website and they go to you know that committee right the advisory committee on the website is uh, the meeting materials which basically uh, it's all of the FDA briefing documents that were provided by the sponsor to the FDA it's the FDA's analysis of that information it's um, you know, presentations that are given during the meetings. And there's a ton of information there. So that's one place to go. The second place to go is that on the same day that this advisory committee meeting occurred for Pfizer, um, the data were published in the New England Journal of Medicine. So that mm -hmm. is another location uh, that, that, uh, that you can go to. Um, you know, if the, if the question is, you know, are they going to release individual data for individual volunteers and and uh you know that's a that's a question that uh you would you would have to uh you'd have to direct to uh, to the company i think right right what, what were the challenges in your job as lead pi um so i think one of the challenges is that the uh the pace that the team has been running so just i can just speak for of course the local uh the local team here which is sizable i mean when you take into account all of the people who participate in executing trials like this um you know it's dozens of people at, at least at our site it's dozens of people uh that that have to support making this making this happen um you know we started enrolling people in july we started the process of you know, uh, discussing with the company that we want, you know, that we were willing to be a site and wanted to be a site a couple months before that. Um, they've been sprinting for a very long time. They've been working incredibly long hours, you know, and, um, 
and there really hasn't been much of a break. And at the same time, they're living in a hot spot of COVID. Uh, uh, you know, many of our investigators are physicians who work in the hospital, so they're also taking care of patients. Everyone's concerned about, you know, whether they're going to get infected, and then we all try to go home to our families, and we're concerned about, uh, you know, concerned about that. So it's it's kind of uh, it's just there's lots of there's lots of forces at play here, and so my my biggest my biggest concern, and I think biggest challenge is kind of just understanding uh, the team dynamic and understanding where you know where people are and trying to trying to meet their needs while at the same time understanding that you know the sprint has to continue because we have to generate this information and we have to be responsive and we have to make sure that that uh, Pfizer and BioNTech can get this data because it's required for them to meet the milestone to go to the FDA. And so you can take that and multiply it by 150 sites, you know, around around the globe, and it gives you a little bit of a sense for, you know, the the, the energy and the maybe the exhaustion and uh, certainly the operational tempo that everyone's you know everyone's having to uh, uh, to operate uh, to operate at. Okay, interesting, and the. I'm going to ask you a little bit now about the trial itself and, and what's going to happen now in, in, in your place and in other places. What are you going to do about the people who were on placebo? So, uh, you know, the, the, this, and this is, in, this is in those documents that were given to the FDA. It was discussed, um, it was discussed at length. Uh, um, with the FDA and there is, you know, ethicists have weighed in on this because it's a balance, right? It's a balance between ensuring that people who participated in the trial and are at risk of COVID or at risk of a bad outcome for COVID. Um, you know, now that we have a vaccine that's, that's safe and, and highly effective, you do not want to deny those people, um, access to that vaccine because one of the reasons that they were enrolled is because they were at risk of infection or risk of a bad outcome uh, from infection. On the other hand, to balance that, you also have the need to continue the trial till its end. And it's a two-year study, right? So the, the, you know, we need to answer questions about how long will immunity last? How long will people be protected? What are long-term uh, are there any long-term safety issues um, related to the vaccine? Um, is the vaccine going to work through, you know, um, multiple COVID seasons? I hate to say that, but it's probably a reality. And and so there's the balance of we need to keep the trial going. We need to keep a placebo component and blinding uh, uh, going. Yet at the same time, we've got to meet the needs of these volunteers. So what, you know, what is happening is that um, volunteers who uh, who received placebo and are in um, and are groups of people who would be vaccinated under the EUA, right? So outside of the context of a of a clinical trial, um, you know, once their number comes up within their community, and that okay, this vaccine would be accessible to you, 
those people are provided the opportunity to unblind. And if they did receive placebo, then we would offer them uh, we would offer them vaccination. It would be done within the context of the trial, and we would continue to follow them and continue to um, you know do the other uh, trial activities that that we planned on doing uh, for the rest of the two year period. Because you know you don't you can't have you cannot have volunteers, um, you know, just because they volunteered to be in a clinical trial, uh, they, that doesn't necessarily mean that they should be able to jump the queue of other people <laughs> in the community who didn't uh, participate in the, in, in the trial. So mm. it's mm. kind of a balancing act, but I think where they landed makes a ton of sense. Uh, and, um, you know, I, I, I think, uh, I think that they made a very uh, good plan, and I think that the uh, uh, the FDA, uh, you know, obviously agreed with that plan, and I think it was a good decision. Hmm. And now the trial looked at COVID nineteen symptoms among participants, but not for the virus. Was that a concern for you as you were handling the data? Well, so I think you know this is this has been a there's been a lot of discussion about this and I so I kind of think to myself well okay what are the types of things what, what can a vaccine do well a vaccine could prevent infection a vaccine can prevent um, disease and it can prevent different severities of disease or a vaccine can prevent the ability for someone who does get infected to transmit it to someone else so you know, I look at those things and I say, okay, what is the public health burden right now of, of COVID? The public health burden of COVID uh, comes from people who obviously get sick and people who have morbidity and mortality as a result of getting sick. So there's suffering and death. So that's one burden. The other burden, though, is those people who get ill even though they may not get seriously ill or, or die, so let's say younger people, for example, um, they still access the healthcare system. They still access a doctor's office. They access testing. They require people to use PPE. They sometimes get admitted to the hospital, even if it's a short stay. And when you have a planet that is never seen a pathogen before, at least as far as we know, and it's a completely susceptible planet, even if it's only a small percentage of people who need to access the healthcare system, it creates an incredible burden and stresses that system. And at least in the United States, our healthcare system is stressed to begin with. I mean, we routinely deal, you know, at my hospital is one of these places, we deal at 90 plus percent occupancy all the time, right? So now you take now you take ninety percent occupancy, you stress it, and now what happens is um, you have to do things like what we just did, which is we have to stop all elective procedures, surgical procedures, or colonoscopies, or other types of procedures. Which means people who have pain and have medical conditions and have uh, you know cancer and and have heart disease and need things done to help make them better, there's no resources to do it anymore. 
right? They, it can't, it can't be, it can't be done. And I, re, you know, I remember seeing the, the, the effects of this over the summer because, you know, we have April and May, we have our little, our first kind of uh, uh, little bump in our epidemic here. And maybe we had, I don't know, you know, 40, 50 patients in the hospital. Um, and it was, it was doable, right? But we, because of the unknown of a lot of this, we shut down elective procedures. Well, I was working in the hospital maybe two months after that and was just getting, you know, crushed with all these patients. And I'm saying, where are all these people coming from? It's not COVID. What has happened here? And it was a very common story that I was afraid to come to the hospital, so I didn't, or I needed a procedure, but I couldn't get it. And basically, small problems have become big problems. Fixable problems have now become unfixable problems. And there was just a lot of, of, of suffering, and, and in some cases, death from non-COVID-related illnesses that were impacted by COVID, sort of like a COVID opportunity cost, you know, if you will. So, well, so, so, so stopping symptoms the way the vaccine does is a clear value. But do you wish you knew whether, whether they were infectious as well to other people? Well, I, yeah, so just, you know, the point that you just made is important because uh, this was brought up at the, at the uh, meeting with the FDA. And it was, it was, you know, as part of my kind of coordinating investigator role, I was sitting, you know, I was sitting on the Pfizer bench, if you will, to represent the external investigator perspective if called upon to do so. And uh, I was I was called upon to answer one question, and I didn't have time to get to it um, because they were so far behind. But the but people were making a really big deal about the fact that you know there were not a lot of severe cases, um, uh, and it prevented them from making a a confident judgment about whether the vaccines could prevent severe disease or not. And I'm sitting there saying to myself, I understand the importance of of being able to impact severe disease, but you should not lose sight of the fact that, you know, we have almost 200 patients in our hospital now, 75% of them are not in the intensive care unit. 75% of them would not be considered severe, but they are occupying hospital beds and taking up resources and um, creating that kind of opportunity cost that I was just talking about. So, um, so yes, now, would it be great if uh, would it be great if these vaccines could uh, drive down viral replication enough in a person such that not only did they um, not experience illness, but they, they were actually not able to transmit to somebody else? Yeah, I think that that would be I think that that would be tremendous. And you know, these trials were designed in such a way that. Um, that information is forthcoming. I, I think Moderna offered a little bit of glimpse. You know, they they made a claim, and it's being discussed now, uh, that their vaccine did prevent asymptomatic infections. But that's different from transmission, and I think that that's something that people need to understand because we know that um, asymptomatic people uh, can transmit disease they can transmit the virus to um to other folks so it's not a 
it, it's not a matter of preventing asymptomatic infections. It's a matter of um, truly interrupting the transmission process, which at least the way I think about it are uh, it's two different things. So to, you know, to try and I think that that's a different, I think that that's a different study design because that, you know, that that's a different study design than, um, uh, again, looking at prevention of, of asymptomatic infections. So I don't, you know, I don't think uh, there may be claims, but, uh, you know, there may be claims or there may be um, extrapolations of data that, you know, that say, well, we believe that we are interrupting transmission because of, you know, uh, these data, you know, and it, it's logical to assume, you know, X, Y, and Z. But I don't think the studies were definitively designed to answer the, the transmission question. Yeah, I mean, there's going to be lots of follow-on there's going to be follow-on studies, and with the, you know, with with the large-scale deployment of vaccines and a totally separate topic. But let's just assume, for example, that in in places where there is a lot of COVID, these vaccines are deployed, people are getting vaccinated, um, and and there's there's high uptake of of vaccine. You might get glimpses of of the vaccine's ability to uh, prevent, um, you know, prevent transmission where you're starting to see rapid declines in new infections that are disproportionate to the number of vaccines that have been uh, administered. And, and we're kind of getting into this discussion of, of uh, uh, it's a little bit of herd immunity. It's a little bit of, uh, you know, direct or indirect effects of of um, a vaccine. But uh, you know, we might get a glimpse of it. But it really is a different. <laughs> it's a different study design. If you want to be a purist about exploring whether or not a vaccine is truly uh, prevents transmission. Question. I'll just ask. I'll ask a question and I'll put it right in front of that. Were there issues with minority communities in this trial? There have been questions about the inclusion of uh, African Americans and uh, Latinx um, uh, communities in in the trial, uh, especially since those populations are bearing a significantly higher proportion, uh, a significantly higher burden of of uh, uh, COVID in terms of you know people get you know. A likelihood of infection, likelihood of disease, likelihood of getting, uh, you know, hospitalized and, and, and dying. Um, and, you know, if you look at the numbers, the, you know, about uh, 28, uh, I guess over 20% of people who self-identified as Latinx, uh, you know, were in the, in the trial and about 9% um, of the trial participants were, uh, were, were African American, and um, you know, I, I have not heard. Uh, and, and I will say that we we made very specific efforts, and this was this was throughout the you know this is throughout all of the sites. We were very specific about trying to enroll people at risk of infection, at risk of a bad outcome if we're infected, 
you know, an African and Latin X uh, and other minority populations who might be at increased risk of a bad outcome if they were infected. Uh, so I do think, you know, it's discussed, but I don't think the, the effort that was made to do that is widely, uh, is widely appreciated. So I don't know if it's a question as much as just making that comment that there were great efforts uh, made. Uh, let me see. I think I just have two more questions, and one I'm not sure is relevant to you, uh, and that would be about why pregnant women and immunocompromised people were excluded. That's, that was in the trial design, and I imagine that was not a decision you were involved with. No, and you know th this has been a this has been a discussion that goes. I mean that predates COVID. I, it's uh, you know when I when I went to college a long time ago, I uh, I was a biomedical ethics major in college, and one of the things that we talked about was the exclusion of of children and uh, um, women in general and pregnant women uh, specifically from from clinical trials, and kind of talked about. You know both sides of that, uh, both sides of that that issue. And then the next time that I really kind of heard about it in earnest was around Zika, right? Where the the public health burden for Zika was predominantly in uh, unborn children, and the um, you know the, the horrible effects that the virus could have on, on on those you know on those unborn children. And there was a lot of ethical discussions at that time about, you know, this is exactly, you know, why aren't we including, um, uh, you know, uh, pregnant women in, in, in trials? Because by not doing so, then we're left in the situation of, well, we don't know if it's safe in pregnant women, and, and therefore we, we can't offer them a potential benefit from a therapeutic or a vaccine because we don't know if it's, you know, if it's safe. My understanding uh, is that those trials are those trials are going to be done. Okay, that comes to my last question, which is this: Would you take something like this on again? Absolutely, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, as as uh, stressful as it has been at times, and as fatiguing as, as it has been at times, um, you know, my. My, my team and my university and my community is, uh, you know, we are very, we feel very privileged and very proud to have participated in, uh, you know, trying to help develop one of the potential solutions to this, uh, uh, to this pandemic. I kind of, you know, me personally, I feel like this is exactly, um, I'm sorry that it has come to pass in the way that it has, but this is exactly what, uh, my education and my training and my experience and my 20 years in the army and everything else, this is, uh, you know, if, if you don't want to step up and contribute in a, uh, <laughs> in a situation like this, you know, what's the, uh, you know, what was the point? So I just, I feel, um, I feel, I feel very satisfied that I was in a, in a position to be able to, uh, to do something. And I feel, uh, incredibly privileged to have been part of this team, to be part of the team of teams that, you know, that Pfizer has created. And then all the other teams that are working on, you know, Operation Warp Speed and, and everything else. So um, I would absolutely do it again. I would just hope for 
a little bit of a break before I would have to. You've been listening to Dr. Stephen Thomas, Chief of Infectious Diseases at Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. That's it for this podcast. I'm Joanne Silberner. We'll be back with more of these big interviews soon. If you want to hear from the people who will be shaping medicine in the coming years, subscribe to BMJ Podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, thanks for listening.